Tonight on PBS News Weekend, U.S. retaliatory strikes on Iran-backed militias in the Middle East. How much more will there be? After deep fake explicit images of Taylor Swift surfaced on social media last week, pressure grows on Congress to take action against the phenomenon. And as coral reefs around the world disappear, the drastic measures conservationists are taking to preserve the remaining underwater beauties. It was definitely an emotional feeling to see these corals that we've worked with for the past years that are supposed to be in the ocean, that's their home, sitting in these raceways for no other reason than the fact that they had to be there or they'd die. Good evening, I'm John Yang. As we come on the air tonight, the United States is carrying out a second wave of airstrikes against dozens of Iran-backed Houthi targets in Yemen. The two-day assault is in response to last weekend's drone strike in Jordan that killed three U.S. troops and injured dozens more. Last night's air assault struck sites in Iraq and Syria used by Iran-backed militias. Pentagon officials said it took just 30 minutes Friday night for B-1 bombers and other U.S. aircraft to hit more than 85 targets. Iraq and Syria said the attacks killed at least 34 people, both members of Iranian-backed militant groups and civilians. Joe Bacino is a retired U U.S. Army colonel. He was the top spokesman at Central Command. Joe, talk about how you design an event like this, a retaliatory strike like this. On the one hand, you want to do something strong enough to get their attention, but on the other hand, you don't want to do anything too strong. So, John, there's basically a range of options from low level of violence to high level of violence. You know, the high level, you're talking about strikes inside of Iran. Low level, you're talking about the kind of little uh, precision strikes we've done, we've been doing since uh, November. This is about what we've done, you know, just tonight and then uh, last night, is in the low to medium range, okay? So you present these options to the White House. Um, the Pentagon makes a recommendation. Ultimately, the National Security Council and the White House renders a decision. What does the response from Iran and from these uh, militant groups, what does it tell you? I'm cautiously optimistic right now. Iran has denounced the strikes, but they haven't said anything about a retaliation. And there are signals here that Iran wants to pull back on some of these Shia proxy groups, that maybe they've gotten a little bit out of control or out of the control of Ismail Khani. He is the, uh, the senior commander of the Quds Force in uh, Iran, in Tehran. And so maybe he wants to pull them back. So I'm optimistic about that. Does he have that control? Is he able to pull them back? What we're hearing is that, uh, you know, you think about Qasem Soleimani, you know, this powerful figure, shadowy figure who really controlled these forces so tightly for so long. When, when he was struck, that really degraded Iran. It really took away their capability, but it also took away their ability to control these loose groups in Iraq, in Syria, in Jordan, in Yemen. And they've gotten a little bit out of control, and now he's trying to pull them back. So there's concern in Tehran. There's concern in D.C. Nobody wants to escalate. So I'm optimistic about that. Uh, some Republicans in, co in Congress have criticized the Biden administration for what they say, waiting too long. This strike was last weekend that took a full week. Uh, what do you make of that? What do you say to that? Oh, I, I agree. I agree. Look, if there is an intellectual thrust of the Biden foreign policy, it's conflict avoidance. And 
you know, avoidance of escalation. And that's generally a, a good impulse for an American president. Here, it doesn't serve us well. And if you look at the history of Iran, it doesn't serve us well here. You know, for five days, we've been talking about this. For five days, we've been talking about what we're not going to do. And I think it signals to Iran that they can continue to kind of push us around. They can continue to strike at our bases, and we're not going to make them feel pain. Because what we do to the Houthis here in Yemen, what we do to these Shia groups in Iraq and Syria, it doesn't really manifest in pain in Iran. Flying bombers halfway around the world to do this. Obviously, there are, there are operational reasons for this. They carry a tremendous amount of payload. They can fly supersonically. But was there also a message being sent? This is all about a message. So the message here is more important than anything you've hit, anything you destroyed, any of these Shia groups that you killed. The B-1 bombers are important because, you know, they can fly under radar coverage. And if you're going to hit inside Iran, you're going you're to hit in, or inside Iran with a B-1 Lancer. What comes next? Well, I think what comes next is you're going to see more passes in Iraq and Syria, like we did last night. You're going to see maybe more strikes on the coast of Yemen. Here tonight, we hit the capital. I don't think we'll do that again. I think we'll hit coastal battery sites. I think this will go into next week, for a few days into next week. And then we'll see. Then we kind of wait. Did Iran get the message? How is Iran going to respond? How are these Shia groups going to respond? That'll, that's what's next. It'll be the same sort of targets or will the, the targeting change? No, you're going to see the same kinds of targets, the same level of violence. And really, you're going to see these bunk. There's a lot more bunkers. So these, these um, complexes that, you know, in, you think about Dorazor in, uh, in the east there in Syria and Abu Kamal, these are complexes that have hundreds of bunkers within them. And so, you know, you, there's a lot more targets you can hit there. We hit 85. That's really not very much. There's a lot more we can do here. Joe Pacino, retired U.S. Army colonel, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. First votes in the Democratic race for president were cast today in the South Carolina primary. Polls are still open, but President Biden is expected to win easily. Mr. Biden wasn't in the state today. He visited his campaign headquarters in Delaware and is heading to campaign stops in California and Nevada. The Republican primary in South Carolina is later this month. Senate negotiators are closing in on a final text of border security legislation. They are now working on the final spending figures for the plan. Senate leaders would like to see votes on the measure next week. No details have been made public. It will also include money for both Ukraine and Israel. If the, if the measure passes the Senate, it would face an uncertain future in the House. Intense forest fires are burning through a densely populated area of central Chile. At least 19 people have died and about 1,100 homes have been destroyed. There are nearly 100 forest fires burning in central and southern Chile, where it's been unusually hot this week. More troubles for former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. He and his wife were sentenced to seven years in prison today after a court ruled that his, the marriage was illegal because his wife remarried too soon after getting a divorce. It was Khan's third prison sentence in less than a week. He's also been convicted of leaking classified documents and of keeping state gifts he received while in office. All this means that Khan can't run in next week's election. He was ousted from power in 2022, but remains popular. 
And for the first time, an Irish nationalist is head of the government of Northern Ireland. Today, the country's legislature named Michelle O'Neill as first minister. She's a member of Sinn Féin, the political party that favors unification of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom. Sinn Féin was affiliated with the militant Irish Republican Army during the decades of violent conflict with unionists who want to stay in the United Kingdom. Today was the legislature's first meeting after a two-year boycott by unionists. Still to come on PBS News Weekend, the push for Congress to take action against AI-generated deep fake images and a dive into the drastic measures scientists are taking to save coral reefs from climate change. This is PBS News Weekend from WETA Studios in Washington, home of the PBS NewsHour, weeknights on PBS. Deep fake pornography uses technology to make explicit photographs appear to be of someone they're not. Images using Taylor Swift's face that surfaced recently have brought the problem front and center. Those images were viewed 45 million times before they were removed from the social media platform X. And victims aren't just high-profile celebrities. The problem seems to get worse every year as technology becomes more sophisticated and more widespread. The targets can suffer trauma so severe that it could lead to thoughts of suicide. Tech journalist Lori Siegel is the founder and CEO of Mostly Human Media, an entertainment company focusing on the intersection of technology and humanity. Lori, who is behind these, these things? Who does it? And what are their motivations? Well, it's such a good question. I think it's a hard answer because there are all sorts of people who are doing this type of thing and it's harder and harder to detect. I think one of the things I worry about is, you know, it's going to be very difficult for, let's say, Taylor Swift wants to go track down the perpetrators behind the folks who posted those images on X. But the problem with this is now we're creating a completely new arena for abuse because you have the democratization of these apps that now enable you with uh, with a couple clicks to create an AI-generated pornography of your crush. There's an app that allows you to, in a couple seconds, just digitally undress someone. And so we're seeing these apps come out uh, that are not only going to make a whole new generation of victims, but also perpetuate a whole new generation of abusers and of young men who might just think this is a game, but it actually has very real harm. It's been a phenomenon for a while, but has AI made it easier? I remember covering non-consensual pornography back in 2015, and the state laws had yet to catch up. And I was—I just remember thinking, God, this is such a horrific type of harm where, you know, perpetrators go and they post a photo uh, of an ex on some of these online forums popping up. Uh, and it was really difficult for women to fight against this because the laws hadn't caught up. Now, I think one of the reasons I am so concerned about this type of technologically advanced like harm is now you didn't even have to take the photo, right? You could say this isn't real, but it looks very real. And you, it's hard to decipher whether it is or not. And most importantly, the harm is real. And you'd say that there are laws against non-consensual pornography, but are there laws against this, against doing it to somebody you don't know? There are a handful of laws at the state level that deal with deepfake pornography. They vary in scope. And I'll, I'll give Taylor Swift as an example. She has jurisdiction here in New York, and so she might be able to file criminal or civil charges. But in order for Taylor to actually go do that, they would have to track down the criminals behind this, which would mean a lot of time and resources that maybe someone like Taylor Swift has, but most people do not have. And the difference with deepfake pornography and the laws that exist here in, in New York is you have to prove uh, 
uh, intent to harm. So then Taylor Swift would actually have to go and say, you know, they wanted to harm me, which it's harder to do with deep fake pornography. People could say they wanted to make money or gain notoriety. And so those laws that vary in scope aren't real. They aren't similar to the ones with non-consensual pornography. And there are a lot of nuances that we have to talk about. What sort of changes in the laws would you like to see happen? When this happened, I immediately got on the phone with so many of the women and the, the lawyers who have been at the forefront of non-consensual pornography, and they've been talking about deep fake pornography and the threat for the last couple years. And that conversation is even more pressing today. Uh, Marianne Franks, who helps a lot of these victims, said that there's a bipartisan federal bill, right? This is a federal bill that's been introduced called Preventing Deep Fakes for Intimate Images uh, that would actually give recourse uh, in the right way to victims from both a criminal standpoint, a civil standpoint. Laws like that, I think, you know, separately, I also think, uh, you know, tech companies need to be instituting a lot of technology at a quicker rate to be able to fight the fight technology. I almost say it's like AI needs to fight AI. The fact that this has now happened to someone as high profile as Taylor Swift, is that going to drive the changes in the law? I mean, I hope so. I mean, she's created micro-economies. People pay attention. She's helped shift, fundamentally shift the music industry because she fought for ownership over her songs. I mean, imagine if someone like Taylor Swift could take on this problem and fight for the future ownership of our bodies online as women. I think I, I would put my eggs in Taylor Swift's basket. I mean, I hate that this happened to her, um, but Taylor Swift is just the, the tip of the iceberg. And I think what happened to her represents a threat uh, for all young women and, uh, and all girls when it comes to the future of our consent online. Laurie Siegel of Mostly Human Media, thank you very much. Thank you. Coral reef ecosystems support a quarter of all the Earth's marine life. But around the world, they're slowly dying under the relentless stress of overfishing, pollution, disease, and climate change. William Brangham dives into the steps scientists are taking to try to save corals. It's part of our ongoing series, Saving Species. Just off the Florida Keys, an urgent rescue mission continues. These scientists are carefully returning pieces of coral back into the ocean and reattaching them to these tree-like coral nurseries. For the last few months, these corals have had to live here, in tanks, on land, because their ocean home was too hot. It looked like it was just melting away, and that's something that we had never, ever really observed before on the reefs. Bailey Thomason works with the Coral Restoration Foundation. Last summer, amid a record ocean heat wave, she and her colleagues visited Florida's Sombrero Reef, and were stunned by what they saw. It was almost like the coral had gotten so stressed from the 90 degree plus Fahrenheit waters that had come that week that the tissue just died and it just started sloughing off of, of the coral skeleton and, and we were too late. Without really even saying anything to each other, we, we gave each other some personal space just to grieve these corals, grieve what at that moment, we knew it was probably going to be a really hard summer. Last year brought on what's called a mass bleaching event, when corals lose their vibrant colors because they've expelled the algae that typically lives in its tissue and provides it with food. They're ailing, but not dead. They can bounce back if the water cools, but last summer, 
that relief never came. Marine temperatures off the coast of Florida were the warmest ever recorded. Manatee Bay in late July exceeded 101 degrees Fahrenheit, possibly the hottest ocean temperature ever recorded on Earth. We had ocean temperatures and like down in 30 feet to 60 feet of water that were 92 degrees. That's like hot tub weather. Cindy Lewis runs the Keys Marine Lab in Long Key, Florida. It's typically a research facility, but last summer it became a triage center. What it looked like here in a matter of the, the first two to three weeks when they were bringing 5,000 corals and more that were transported through here, it looked like a giant coral mash unit with people running in and out with coolers of water and, and getting corals into their tanks and everything else. Keys Marine Lab and other sites throughout Florida stored thousands of coral specimens in these tanks known as raceways. They did so not simply to save an animal, but to save an entire ecosystem. Coral reefs cover a mere fraction of a percent of the ocean floor, but they are teeming with life, a quarter of all marine life on the planet. They're like these submerged rainforests with incredible biodiversity, as much if not more so than the Amazon rainforest. When corals die, that habitat is lost, often leaving behind only oxygen-choking algae and making coastlines vulnerable to storms and erosion. CRF and others felt there was no other choice to save critical corals, whose populations had already plunged by 90% over the last 50 years. It was definitely an emotional feeling to see these corals that we've worked with for the past years that are supposed to be in the ocean, that's their home, sitting in these raceways for no other reason than the fact that they had to be there or they'd die. The drastic decision to pull these corals out of their habitat and store them on land, which had never been done on this scale, saved them. And since October, thousands of corals have been returned to the ocean. But with the potential of another hotter than normal summer this year, it's led scientists to redouble their efforts towards worst case scenarios. Collecting genetic samples of corals and storing them permanently in tanks on land as a long-term insurance policy, even selectively breeding corals to be more heat tolerant. Even though this was something we had never done before, having gone through it, we feel very prepared to sort of pull this sort of rescue and triage mission out again, if and when needed. The idea is to not do this again. Apart from those efforts to keep corals alive in the ocean, here in this stretch of rural Virginia, another effort is underway. They're trying to preserve the biodiversity of corals, but using a very different technique. So we've got our coral in our chamber with our, uh, with our, um, our cryoprotectant solution. And what we're gonna do now is put it in our rack and get ready for the plunge into the liquid nitrogen. Mike Henley is with the Smithsonian's National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute. What is this temperature here? This is minus 196 degrees Celsius. And we just go really quick. Wow. He's demonstrating a process known as isochoric vitrification at the Institute's biorepository in Front Royal, Virginia. It's taking a small fragment of coral, a little colony of polyps, each dot an individual animal, and suspending them in animation at incredibly cold temperatures. 
So what's happening inside there right so, now? Sorry. So that as that temperature is dropping, that solution is actually turning into a glass-like state so that the, the, the coral is suspended. It's frozen with that ice, but still alive and can remain that way for, in theory, hundreds if not thousands of years. Up until now, this technique has only been used for coral sperm and larvae, not entire living animals. Were you convinced at the beginning that this was going to work as a technique? No, not at all, really. It's very much the this, this stuff of science fiction. We're working at the very edge of biology, engineering, and thermodynamics. The Smithsonian's Mary Hagedorn spearheads this effort to cryopreserve coral. She spoke to us from Coconut Island off the coast of Oahu, where she lives and works. She said that once a preserved coral is thawed, before it can be reintroduced to the ocean, it has a long road to get back to health. I sort of think of it as a, you know, sort of an open heart patient that's gone through this rigorous operation, is very stressed, and then needs special care to get back home to its, you know, to their family. But while reanimating a preserved coral remains challenging, Hagedorn emphasized that cryopreservation can do what other conservation methods can't. A single cryotank could hold thousands of coral species, far more than any raceway tank, and it could theoretically preserve them for years at a stretch. And the hope is for this coral preservation technique to become grassroots. For this type of technology, we're going to make it inexpensive and very easy to do. And so the average professional will be able to do this. We will train them and they will be able to do it and secure their own reef material. So you really do envision like an army of people on reefs all over the world, taking these samples, freezing them locally and keeping them stored away for this sort of worst case scenario. Yes, you saw the beginnings of that at Front Royal. That is the beginning of that army. All of it, Hagedorn says, is for the critical goal of keeping these species alive well into the future. This is what drives me really is, is the threat of extinction and the worry of extinction. I very much want the children, you know, a hundred years from now to be able to see a coral reef, if, if at all possible. You know, it's one of the most extraordinary places on earth. And it's so critical to our life on earth and I want it to continue. And if I can play even a small role in that, I am happy to do that. Securing one of the most fundamental ecosystems on the planet through an uncertain future. For PBS News Weekend, I'm William Brangham. We have an update to the breaking news we had at the top of the show about the U.S. retaliatory strikes against Iran-backed Houthi militants in Yemen. Tonight, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says these strikes were conducted by the militaries of the United States and the United Kingdom with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada, Denmark, the Netherlands, and New Zealand. He concluded by saying the strikes are meant to send a clear message to the Iran-backed Houthis that they will continue to bear consequences if they do not end their illegal attacks on international shipping and naval vessels. And now online, Oklahoma is the latest school system to opt out of the federal summer food program that provides meals for children with low-income families while school is out. All that and more is on our website, pbs.org newshour. And that is PBS News Weekend for this Saturday. On Sunday, Pakistan votes one of the series of consequential elections across the Southern Asia this year. I'm John Yang. For all of my colleagues, thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow.